Did you know that a quality night's sleep helps you prevent burnout, make better decisions, and improve your memory? That's why Lisa designed a better mattress. With over 30 years of experience and hundreds of hours of testing, they developed the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. It helps me get a quality night's sleep. Don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash women. Listen to two other great women of podcasting on the Unladylike podcast. Unladylike isn't a podcast podcast, but we think it's right up your alley. Kristen and Caroline are hilarious, and they aren't afraid to break society's unwritten rules. Their most recent episode about how to put on your face for work was terrific. I look forward to every new episode. Listen to Unladylike now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Mrs. Pinkham, I have been afflicted by a malady that my physician frankly tells me he has never met with before, and I write to ask you the cause and what the cure is. My gums turn white, and a layer easily rubs off, leaving them very red and angry. The inside of my cheeks and corners of my jaw are white and look and feel hot. I have also womb trouble, constant pain in the small of my back, I sleep well, and my appetite is good, but I am not strong. Lydia Pinkham didn't need to read any further. She knew without a single doubt that this woman had been poisoned, and at the hands of her own doctor. This anonymous letter, sent in the 1880s, captured the trouble that plagued women all over America at that time. Pseudoscience and speculation ruled the medical field. Lydia Pinkham, a progressive, free-thinking woman of her day, had all but given up on doctors, keenly aware of the dangers they posed to women in particular. You have taken virulent poisons in the form of medicine, Lydia wrote back to the woman. My compound is good for you. Its cleansing and healing properties will benefit you. Take the compound, she advised, and let doctors alone. Lydia refused to content herself with mainstream health care. Instead, she developed her own herbal medicine that eased many reproductive disorders, from menstrual cramps to menopausal depression. And she made sure that her fellow woman had access to it. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who changed the face of business. We tell you how they changed the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. Now, let's dive into the life of Lydia Estes Pinkham, the innovative potion proprietor behind Lydia Pinkham's Vegetable Compound for Women. Her compound satisfied a vital need of the time, offering safe treatment for female maladies. 
Women's health issues in the 1800s were vastly misunderstood. In her book, Female Complaints, Lydia Pinkham and the Business of Medicine, which was published in 1979, Sarah Stage wrote that some physicians of the time even referred to the uterus as the sewer of all excrements existing in the body. According to Stage, physicians suggested that women who wanted to enlarge their sphere of action would pay a heavy price. Their sexual organs would rise against them in retaliation. Lydia would enlarge her sphere, as doctors would have called it, by entering the world of business. But her reproductive organs did not retaliate against her. Instead, she used her expanded role to treat the reproductive ailments of women. Women were desperate for safe and effective treatments for reproductive issues. Their symptoms ranged from menstrual cramps, menopausal depression and hot flashes, to more serious problems like prolapsed uterus. This is where Lydia stepped in. She brewed an herbal tonic that, if taken orally, helped ease these symptoms. She identified an underserved market and flooded it with an effective product from a trusted source that was even customizable to a woman's specific needs. The rise of Lydia's business, the Lydia Estes Pinkham Medical Company, is a masterclass in turning a small home business into a nationally known, financially successful enterprise. She employed a number of business principles, becoming a master of marketing, referral networks, and direct-to-consumer advertising, she used her informational pamphlets to establish credibility and used her face to famously brand her product. She even managed to secure a patent for her potion at a time when women were excluded from most business matters. In many ways, Lydia was a woman of the 19th century, dutifully and lovingly taking on motherhood and housekeeping. And, in many ways, she was far ahead of her time, revolutionizing the business of medicine at large and the ways we talk about women's health. Lydia came from an enterprising family in Lynn, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Her father, Billy Estes, worked as a shoemaker and in the salt trade. The city of Lynn was rapidly expanding at the start of the 19th century, and the Estes family owned a sizable farm located directly in the path of development. Billy, realizing the opportunities in real estate, sold his land off to the city developers and was able to amass a small fortune for his family. As his fortune grew, so did his family. On February 9, 1819, during the financial upswing of the real estate boom, Lydia was born. She was the tenth of twelve children in the Estes household. The Estes family were Quakers, a Christian sect that believes in the spiritual equality of men and women. This idea was unpopular with other Christian groups that believed in a hierarchy of religious clergymen. Lydia's mother, Rebecca Estes, instilled in her children the teachings of Lutheran scientist and theologian Emanuel Swedenborg. Like Quakers, Swedenborg opposed slavery and drinking and supported women's rights. Women's roles in the 19th century were still fairly traditional. Many believed business and government were men's work and women were to stay home to run the house. But a new movement, the Republican Motherhood, urged women to become strong educators and good citizens so that they might raise their children to be the same. 
From what we can gather, Rebecca Estes was likely a follower of the Republican motherhood and provided her children with the best education she could. Higher education aside, women were expressly prohibited from certain professions, such as becoming lawyers, but many still left domesticity behind to become factory workers or small business owners. Other women, like Lydia's mother, became social reformers and helped raise a generation of activists. Rebecca's kind heart opened the minds of her children as she opened their door to social reformers and abolitionists, those who worked towards ending slavery. The family was close with Frederick Douglass, renowned freed slave and advocate of abolition. In 1835, at the age of 16, Lydia joined the Lynn Female Anti-Slavery Society alongside her mother and sister. Before Lydia found her voice as a great woman of business, she first had to fight to be heard at a time when women were still largely excluded from public life. One group that was of particular interest to Lydia, the Lynn Debating Society, refused membership to women. But in the spirit of Facebook's COO Sheryl Sandberg, who we've mentioned previously in this series, Lydia chose to press ahead, demand a seat at the table, and make her voice heard. Sandberg calls this principle leaning in, her term for women asserting themselves in the workforce. LinkedIn, Facebook, and the Anita Borg Institute are launching computer science and engineering lean-in circles. Lean-in circles are small groups of women or men who work together to help women achieve their ambitions. This was a principle that would serve Lydia well throughout her life as an entrepreneur. Not to be excluded, Lydia created a rival debating society, the Freeman's Institute. She described the Institute as, quote, an association for free discussion, untrammeled by the usual rules and forms of debating societies. The rules, of course, were that only men could debate. When Lydia created the Freeman's Institute, she didn't just find her own voice. She continued to help others find theirs as an advocate for abolition and gender equality. Through the Freeman's Institute, Lydia met Isaac Pinkham, who shared many of her interests and forward-thinking ideals. In 1843, at the age of 24, Lydia married the 28-year-old Isaac. Though Lydia was particularly progressive for her time, she remained traditional when it came to her domestic duties as wife, mother, housekeeper, and caretaker. She lovingly raised her four children, Charles, Daniel, William, and Araline, the only girl. Elbert Hubbard, an American author who wrote an ode to Lydia in 1915, described her as, quote, a mother and companion to her children. She entered into their studies, their play, their hopes, and their aspirations. Like her father, Lydia's new husband was also eager to chase new business ventures, but he often fell prey to get-rich-quick schemes that rarely panned out. In the late 1840s, Isaac dove headlong into the business of land speculation, or buying property in hopes that in time it will increase in value. But it was all a waiting game. Frustrated by his unsuccessful business dealings in the past, Isaac came up with his own business principles, which he titled, To Secure Success in Business. He wrote them down for safekeeping in Lydia's journal. The rules were more guidelines that he himself wished he had followed, such as dealing only with honest men and being well-educated about your line of work. 
he also asserted that one should, quote, be satisfied with doing well and continue doing well. A sure sixpence is better than a doubtful shilling, end quote. Though Lydia was still a ways away from establishing her own business, risk tolerance or the ability to take calculated risks would be another important business principle for her company. The advice to remain on the conservative side of business deals seems sound, but the Pinkham family would learn that some risks could pay off in a big way. Lydia took her husband's business struggles in stride and focused on her wifely duties for the first few years of their marriage. But it wasn't long before Lydia's dabbling in homeopathic remedies earned her reputation as the neighborhood health expert. Lydia's mother had made sure she was well-educated. This made her a valuable resource when it came to matters of health and wellness, which were in a sorry state during Lydia's lifetime. 19th century medicine was plagued by ignorance and arrogance. Misinformation was as contagious as the diseases the doctors were trying to treat. Physicians at this time clung to the ancient notion that all diseases were caused by an imbalance or a disturbance in the human body. A foul odor called a miasma or an evil spirit were believed to be possible causes for these imbalances. Orthodox medicine, or the traditional practices at this time, believed that balance could be restored by removing or purging the offending presence. They prescribed medicines that induced vomiting and used leeches to suck the blood from suffering patients. These practices of purging and bloodletting, called heroic therapies, were the most common forms of treatment for any kind of illness imaginable. Since they produced visible changes in the body, they were hard to argue against even if those changes were not exactly positive. These self-taught doctors and the lack of training or standard practices meant anyone could open a book and call themselves a doctor. The unregulated practices began to erode the reputation of the medical profession as a whole. When new studies were done and germ theory started to develop in Britain, American doctors flat out rejected what they called old world science. According to Elaine G. Breslau, author of Lotions, Potions, Pills, and Magic, Healthcare in Early America, quote, the nationalistic fervor that accompanied this new nation and the assumption of American exceptionalism blocked the acceptance of new ideas in medicine. Women were especially at risk during this time, when confusion and speculation about female reproductive organs were at their peak. The treatments available to women were dangerous and sometimes horrifying. Doctors treated amenorrhea, or the irregular absence of menstruation, by putting leeches on her cervix and surgically removed ovaries to treat menstrual cramping. Both practices put women in even more danger. There was an even greater invisible threat that doctors posed to women. Sarah Stage wrote that these doctors were ignorant or averse to the idea of sterilization and often went from one operation to the next, carrying dangerous bacteria from patient to patient. She added that it wasn't until 1870 that physicians acknowledged their role in spreading purpural fever, which is caused by uterine infection following childbirth. The modesty and embarrassment around women's bodies at the time also made it impossible for them to receive effective health care. 
In order to remain proper, many physicians examined fully dressed women by feeling their genitalia under their skirts and averting their eyes. Without a comprehensive examination, women were misdiagnosed and treated incorrectly. The whole process for women remained shameful and ineffective at best, and dangerous or fatal at worst. This left many women afraid of seeking the help of a male doctor. Sarah Stage wrote, Lydia advised women to leave doctors alone, not because she feared for their immodesty, but because she feared for their lives. Growing opposition to dangerous and reckless medical practices ushered in new medical movements. Lay people began experimenting with botanical herbs in an attempt to find safer relief from their ailments. In 1822, Samuel Thompson published New Guide for Health, which described methods for treating illnesses with herb concoctions. From this guide grew the Thompsonian movement. New sects seeking natural treatments continued to form and cause division amongst the medical communities. But Thompson's herbal practices always seemed the safest, so they became very popular with housewives. A reform enthusiast like Lydia was no exception. She bought into Thompsonianism completely. She kept a copy of John King's American Dispensatory, a volume published in 1854 that included an ample list of herbs and their medicinal uses. Lydia also recorded her own journal titled Medical Directions for Ailments, where she wrote down her own homeopathic treatments. In her artillery, she had a remedy that claimed to cure all female complaints. Isaac received the recipe for this compound as payment from a gentleman who had defaulted on a loan. Legend has it that this recipe, with some tweaks made by Lydia, is the original formula for her famous compound. Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound, as it came to be known, was a simple blend of herbs consisting of unicorn root, life root, black cohosh, pleurisy root, and fenugreek seed, suspended in about 19% alcohol as a preservative. Lydia drew on the wisdom of John King's American Dispensatory while perfecting her compound. Ingredients like unicorn root were believed to prevent miscarriage and ease inflammation of the uterus. Life root was said to have cured instances of irregular or missed periods, while black cohosh offered relief from a number of uterine disorders. Fenugreek seed was the only ingredient that Lydia added to the original recipe. It was believed to have a mild aphrodisiac effect. The claims of curing all female complaints, while likely exaggerated, were at least based in common medical opinion of the day. In fact, black cohosh is still used as a supplement to help with symptoms of painful periods and hot flashes of menopause. The compound worked so well that its praises were sung far and wide. For 10 years, Lydia passed out her home brew free of charge to women all over Lynn. For her, medicine wasn't a business venture, it was a community service. But that would all change in 1874, when the Pinkham family's financial woes reached a breaking point. That year, the economy suddenly downturned, sending the country into the worst depression it had yet seen. As the speculative land bubble burst, Isaac's investments all crumbled. As property values drastically declined, so did Isaac's health. The financial pressure was too much for him to bear, and he became bedridden. 
the banks began foreclosing and threatened to have those who could not make their mortgage payments arrested, and soon they came for Isaac, now nearly 60, but found him at home, his health failing. The Pinkhams pled their case to the bank's attorney, who, as it turns out, was a distant relative to the family. The charges against Isaac were dropped, but the family's financial situation was still dire. The Pinkhams were desperate for a saving grace. By now, in 1875, the 56-year-old Lydia's children were all adults, working to contribute as much as possible to the household they all still shared, but it still wasn't enough to keep them afloat. Lydia called her family together to work out a solution. All hope seemed lost. Dan's grocery store had gone under because, as a member of the temperance movement, he refused to stock alcohol. William and Araline were already working as much as they could. Dan was always the son with the grandest ideas, and that fateful day was no exception. Suddenly, in the middle of the family meeting, there was a knock on the door. It was a group of women who had driven into the city from Salem, Massachusetts, the next town over, looking to purchase half a dozen bottles of Lydia's vegetable compound. Normally, Lydia gave the compound away for free, but the women were offering payment, so she accepted $5 from the women for all six bottles. Today, this would amount to about $144. Here, the Pinkhams first experienced the benefits of a strong referral network, another important business principle for Lydia. Lydia's kindness, her willingness to help, and her rounded social circle had already done most of the work in establishing her as someone who was referable. One building block of a successful referral network is to make positive connections. Derek Coburn, author of Networking in Not Working, said, Effective networking happens when you never lose sight of your most important connections and constantly seek where you can be of service to them. Lydia was already fulfilling a service to her neighbors. Albert Hubbard wrote of Pinkham, Whenever sickness entered the cottage of a neighbor, Mrs. Pinkham was ever ready to offer her help and assistance. The sick and the poor, those in trouble, looked to Mrs. Pinkham for sympathy, and they were never disappointed. The second building block of a successful referral network is simply, be good enough at what you do that your existing customers want to refer you. Since so many women benefited from Lydia's compound, word of its value spread quickly. Despite her adherence to the temperance movement, which promoted abstaining from alcohol, Lydia was part of a school of thought that believed alcohol still had medicinal purposes. However, no one at the time knew quite how much alcohol actually made it into her serum, which was taken orally. Medical professionals continued to debate whether or not the product really worked, or whether the positive effects might just have come from the extremely high alcohol content. Either way, there were very few other remedies that were safe and effective at the time. So even if only some relief came from taking the vegetable compound, it was enough to deem the product a great success. 26-year-old Dan Pinkham immediately saw the perfect market to capitalize on. Sarah Stage wrote that he later asked, quote, Mother, if those ladies will come all the way from Salem to get that medicine, why can't we go into the business of making and selling it, same as any other medicine? 
end quote. No one at the table had a good reason why it couldn't be done. It was obvious Lydia had already arrived at her most important business principle. She had cultivated a product that targeted the specific need of an untapped market. The rise of Thomsonian home remedies in the previous decade had opened the door for the business of patent medicines, over-the-counter medications that, at the time, weren't regulated for safety or effectiveness. There were plenty of dubious elixirs on the market, claiming to treat everything from cancer to venereal diseases, but there was yet to be a patent medicine that was effective at treating women's health problems. Today, even companies that are already well-established still look for new ways to branch out by fulfilling the needs of underserved markets. In April of 2017, Nike acknowledged the need for a performance hijab for female Muslim athletes who want to adhere to Arab and Muslim customs. Fencer Ibtihaj Muhammad is famous for being the first American Olympic athlete to compete wearing a hijab. Now she's the first hijab-wearing American with an Olympic medal. The U.S. women's saber team lost a tight semifinal to Russia, then crushed Italy 45-30 to for the bronze. We came in here the underdogs. We haven't medaled all year. And to be able to do that and go home with a medal is just a phenomenal feat that I'll never forget this moment. And the thing about a bronze is you not only win a medal, you end with a win. Warren Levinson, Rio de Janeiro. A report in the Financial Times noted that in 2015, Muslim consumers made up 11% of global spending, but their specific athletic wear needs were still going unaddressed until Nike created their line of secure, breathable mesh hijabs for Muslim athletes. According to Fortune writer Bernard Banks, athleisure wear marketed to Muslim women is projected to reach $350 billion by 2020. Just like the executives at Nike, Lydia was able to identify a need and provide a solution to it. This would be her most valued business principle in forming the Lydia Estes Pinkham Medical Company. Though she didn't know it at the time, this was just the beginning of a business venture of a lifetime one that would turn Lydia into a marketing sensation and solidify her role as the self-proclaimed savior of her sex. I'm thrilled to be partnering with Secret Deodorant to speak with Claire Wasserman, who is a pioneer for women's equality and who works incessantly to close the gender wage gap through her own company, Ladies Get Paid. Can you first explain what the gender wage gap is and who it affects? It's basically calculated by dividing the national median income of all full-time year-round working women by the national median income of all full-time year-round working men. So generally speaking, uh, white women make 78 cents on the dollar. That's usually what everybody talks about, that the wage gap is 78 or 80 cents on the dollar. And I do want to be clear that that is particular to white women. Um, black women make uh, closer to 68 or 64 cents to the dollar, and Hispanic women make 54 or 55 cents to the dollar. So at our current rate of progress, how long will it take us to close the gender wage gap? 
217 years. Okay, so according to the World Economic Forum, uh, right now they're approximating uh, that it'll take just over 200 years to close the wage gap. Here's the thing, though. Progress is not linear. So last year, it was 170 years. And for some reason, this year, it's now more. Okay, now knowing these sobering statistics, what can we do as women to receive higher pay in the workplace? You know, again, as an individual to combat the wage gap uh, and to feel those results, I think it's getting a raise. Um, It's making sure that you are getting paid what you deserve. Thank you so much for your time, Claire. Your fight for women's equality is inspiring. And thank you to our sponsor, Secret Deodorant, for connecting us. Not sweating is great, so you should buy Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant. Now let's get back to the story. Lydia Pinkham defied many odds when she took to the helm of her own business. In addition to the social debate over whether or not a woman should insert herself into the world of business, there were also many logistics that made participating a challenge. Sammy R. Dana explores these limitations of the patent climate of the 1800s in Lydia Pinkham, the face that launched 1,000 ads. Referring to a business book about the period, she writes, The technical skills and high costs associated with patent applications presented challenges to women, and they often had ideas, but not necessarily the funds or legal knowledge to protect their inventions. It was common for patent medicines to make bold or unsubstantiated claims. In the mid-1800s, Harvard's Dr. Holmes criticized the process, saying it created toadstool millionaires and that fortunes were founded on fabrication, deception, and deceit. In 1876, the year after her fateful visit from the Salem women, Lydia registered her label and trademark with the United States Patent Office. The Lydia E. Pinkham Medicine Company became official. The family was strategic about protecting their profits and made 23-year-old Will Pinkham, Lydia's third son, the sole proprietor of the company. At the time, women could still be liable for their husband's debts, so Isaac's debtors could come after Lydia for any profits she earned. Since Will was debt-free and in the best financial standing, they put the business under his name. Meanwhile, Lydia continued production of the medicine. She also wrote advertising copy and responded to letters from women asking for advice. Will and Dan spearheaded the advertising campaigns, handing out printed materials on the street. Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound, as it was called, was classified as a proprietary remedy, but unlike others of its kind, she did not need to resort to exaggerated or falsified marketing tactics. Testimonies and positive reviews were on Lydia's side, so the honesty behind her product's claims made her product more trustworthy. Yet getting that effective product into people's hands still proved challenging. Lydia wrote a four-page pamphlet called Guide for Women, which her sons diligently distributed throughout Lynn. Dan left them at the houses he visited on his mail route. Dan and Will eventually traveled into Boston, where they carried the leaflets door-to-door, trying to drum up business. The drugstores were reluctant at first to carry an unknown product, but soon the wholesalers, Weeks and Potters of Boston, placed an order of medicine to carry on their shelves. They requested a gross, an amount equal to 12 dozen bottles. 
It was a small taste of success, but not enough to turn around any significant profits. In spring of 1876, just a few months after they made the company official, Dan left Lynn and moved to Brooklyn, New York, hoping to target a wider market. Despite his best efforts in New York, sales were meager at first. Sarah Stage explains, To build up sales, the fledgling company needed to advertise heavily in order to create a consumer demand and to convince druggists to carry the compound. If they couldn't convince drugstores in New York to carry the product, their pamphlets and flyers were no use, since the compound wasn't readily available for purchase. Dan discovered a particular challenge for their advertisements early on. The language in their pamphlet, titled Guide for Women, boldly referenced uterine issues in a way that was uncommon at the time. Dan could see that women were uncomfortable with the promotional material that publicly called attention to otherwise very private feminine issues. So Dan suggested revising the language to be more palatable for the genteel target market. He also worried that the title, Guide for Women, was too limiting, since the compound also treated kidney ailments, a benefit to many men. Dan also wanted to make a play at men, since they generally had larger disposable incomes than women did. Lydia took her son's advice and rewrote her instructional pamphlet, simply retitling it, Guide. If she could use the culture's prudishness to her advantage in her ads, that's what she would do. This is another advertising business principle referred to as engaging for impact. Gwen Moran, co-author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Business Plans, wrote in Fast Company, being able to read people and respond appropriately to them will make a difference in how they respond to you. Lydia was willing to take her son's input seriously and change course with regards to their promotional material. This shows another key business principle and an earmark of a great leader, which is employee empowerment through trust and encouragement. Bill Taylor, co-founder of Fast Company, wrote in Harvard Business Review, quote, Give your people the chance to think for themselves, to do what makes sense, end quote. The support that Lydia gave to her sons encouraged them to try new things, and soon their innovation paid off. Google is one company famous for investing in its employees in this way. Every single Google employee is given the opportunity to spend 20% of their work week on any project that strikes their fancy. This process is meant to foster collaboration and innovation. Prasad Seti, VP of People Analytics and Compensation, told Mark C. Crowley in Fast Company, No one has ever asked us why we should invest in our people. Our leaders just assume it's the right thing to do. Despite Dan's best efforts, New York remained a tough market, and in the spring of 1876, Will took a leap of faith on a new tactic. With $84 on hand from a recent order, he purchased a cover page ad in the Boston Herald to print Lydia's guide on the front page. Will negotiated the price for the ad down to $60, about $1,350 today. But when he arrived home with the news, his family was shocked and dismayed. His father Isaac had once penned in his rules of successful business that 
a sure sixpence is better than a doubtful shilling, and his family thought this risk was extremely foolish. This was the company's first real foray with the risk tolerance principle that Isaac had warned them against. But Will had strength in numbers on his side. The Boston Herald circulated 50,000 copies. It would cost the Pinkhams $100 to print that many pamphlets, compared to the 60 Will spent on the ad. Getting their product in front of 50,000 people was the type of visibility that could change everything for the Pinkhams. Advertisers today still vie for television spots that will get the most viewers and appeal to a wide variety of people. AP correspondent Julie Walker describes the mass marketing tactics of coveted Super Bowl ad spots, which often sell for over $2 million for 30 seconds. Running the ad in the Boston Herald proved to be the right move for the Pinkums after all. Only two days after the ad ran, they received orders from three separate wholesalers eager to stock the product. In 2015, another company took a huge risk that paid off in a big way. REI, the company that specializes in recreation gear, closed its doors on Black Friday in a campaign they named Opt Outside. Employees and consumers alike were encouraged to go outside and share their stories on social media, where the campaign became a huge hit. Laura Swap, Director of Public Affairs and Marketing at REI, told Retail Dive it was a high-risk scenario. Kareen Ruff of Retail Dive wrote that the campaign, quote, rallied brand loyalty among its environmentally conscious consumers, end quote. She added, the campaign's success hits on three key takeaways for smaller retailers, differentiation, a focused brand identity, and engagement. The Boston Herald ad was a huge turning point in the marketing strategy of the Lydia E. Pinkham Medicine Company. As wholesale orders slowly began to multiply, newspaper ads soon became the main focus of their marketing techniques. They hired an advertising agent named T.C. Evans, who managed one of their first advertising campaigns. Lydia's company's innovative ads adhered to the main pillars of the AIDA method, which stands for attention, interest, desire, and action. This business principle wouldn't be considered standard practice until after the 1900s. Attributed to American sales pioneer E. St. Elmo Lewis, the method states that an advertisement must accomplish four things. It must grab the attention of the target consumer and then generate interest in the benefits of the product. Building on the interest, the ad should then create a desire for the product. Then finally, the ad should call the consumer to action, to purchase the product or engage with the company. And so, attention, interest, desire, and action became the four pillars of AIDA, the classic model of advertising. Many business analysts believe that even if one step is omitted, the advertisement will fail. Lydia followed these steps to a T, first getting the attention of the women they were marketing to. The Pinkhams had already seen the success of catering their ad language to their target demographic, and they took advantage of the common discourse about female fragility and hysteria. 
One of their more sensational ads even claimed that a clergyman was killed by his wife after her years of female complaints had made her unstable. The ad claimed that only the vegetable compound could have treated her before it was too late. Lydia's ads boasted, a medicine for women, invented by a woman, prepared by a woman. This gave Lydia a strong competitive edge by reinforcing the idea that only she, a woman, could understand the health issues of other women. The Pinkhams also played up the importance of motherhood, suggesting that a woman could only provide quality care to her family if she remained in good health. An overlap of interest and desire were at play here. Women were interested in a product that finally addressed their specific needs and they desired the benefits that could improve their lives, and by extension, the lives of their families. Tori Barnes-Bruss, a sociology professor at Cornell College, has extensively studied Pinkham's impact on women's health. She wrote, quote, While the direct message is to buy the vegetable compound, the text reminds women that being a mother is a joyous endeavor, one dependent on her own health. Ads such as these not only reinforce standards of mothering, they also point to the commercialization of women's health. Another author, Sammy R. Dana, wrote, quote, Lydia never pretended to be a doctor, instead asserting that she knew more about women's ailments because she was a woman. She relied on anecdotal rather than statistical evidence to back up her claims, end quote. This drove women to take action to try the product themselves, and to write to Lydia to share their experiences. Testimonials became a huge part of Lydia's marketing campaign, allowing the product to speak for itself through its happy users. Many testimonials were unsolicited, which helped solidify the brand's authenticity even more. But some savvier ladies requested payment for their letters of recommendation. Lydia didn't just believe in medical reform, she also believed in her product. Her dedication to making a positive difference in women's lives was most obvious in the ways she interacted with her customers. Lydia responded with great care to the letters that women sent her, offering encouragement and advice. She even customized orders for each unique buyer. Sarah Stage wrote that Lydia's customers became, quote, part of the family. They swapped recipes and exchanged Christmas greetings, end quote. This type of friendly engagement with customers' attributes still can set a business apart from its competitors. Perhaps no other store knows that better than the American grocery chain Trader Joe's. In 2013, Forbes magazine asked why Trader Joe's customers were the most satisfied in America, and the answer was the friendly atmosphere of the store with a policy that encourages patrons to try new products right there in the store aisles and staff workers who are courteous and helpful, Trader Joe's offers a unique shopping experience. Just like Lydia Pinkham, Trader Joe's strives to curate emotionally satisfying experiences for their customers and by doing so, builds brand loyalty. Lydia's customers felt cared for in an environment where quality care was so hard to come by. When an anonymous woman wrote to Lydia about the sores on her gums, Lydia knew the woman was suffering from mercury poisoning from calomel, a popular prescription. 
aware that the alcohol content in the regular formula would aggravate the symptoms, Lydia sent the woman lozenges instead, along with advice to eat well and get lots of fresh air. Customizing her product was another way that Lydia was able to build a strong, trustworthy relationship with her customers. Her emphasis on the consumer experience also set her apart as a woman who cared about her product and her customers. Modern businesses still strive to show that they care about their customers and their user experiences. As Lydia focused on engaging with her customers, Dan remained dedicated to the company's advertising strategies. He constantly sought out new ways to make their ads more appealing and more visible. In 1879, at the age of 31, Dan had a brilliant idea. He wanted to put the image of a healthy woman on the label of the vegetable compound with the slogan, quote, She is now as healthy a woman as can anywhere be found, having taken four bottles of Mrs. Pinkham's compound, end quote. When he visited his mother for Christmas that year, it couldn't be more obvious to him that the picture of a healthy woman that he was searching for was his own mother, Lydia Pinkham, the very creator of the compound. The family agreed that the idea was sound. Soon, 60-year-old Lydia posed for a photograph that was then added to the advertisements. No other advertisements, even those that used photographs, had ever included the image of a woman before. Lydia's face made history. Sarah Stage commented, quote, The picture conveyed the whole Pinkham message. At a glance, it inspired confidence. The attractive woman appealed to her audience as an idealized grandmother. Lydia Pinkham not only identified her product, she came to embody it. End quote. Lydia Pinkham was now using another important business principle, creating a distinctly recognizable brand. Some clientele and wholesalers of the product had never seen Lydia herself and were skeptical that she even existed. These wholesalers had only worked with Dan or Will. Now that this new advertisement proudly displayed Lydia on her own product, her role in the company was undeniable. There were no more doubts about the authenticity of Lydia and her compound. Sales immediately skyrocketed, and just six months after the Pinkhams started running the ad, they turned down an offer of $100,000 for the company and the new trademark, approximately $2.3 million today. The company branded itself so effectively that it attained national recognition on par with the internationally recognized Golden Arches of McDonald's or the ubiquitous Apple logo. They are still widely recognized. In fact, uh, they are the top at the top of the list of the world's most recognized brands among global teens. What's happened, though, in terms of liking or popularity, they have plummeted. And like McDonald's, despite her financial success, Lydia received quite a bit of backlash for her public prominence. She was mocked and parodied by college glee clubs whose songs included lyrics like, Oh, we'll sing of Lydia Pinkham and her love for the human race, how she sells her vegetable compound, and the papers, the papers they publish, they publish her face. One anonymous man even chose to write about his discontent with Lydia's image. Quote, 
If it is necessary that you should parade your portrait in every country paper in the United States, you ought to feel solemn any way that your face pervades the mind of the nation like a nightmare. End quote. This type of criticism is often rooted in sexism and misogyny, and is perpetuated by men who believe that women do not have the right to participate in their chosen field. Lydia's experience with her critics proves that it has never been easy for a woman to take a leading role in male-dominated industries. Women still face challenges in overcoming these belief systems, and in the modern era, many have fought back. In 2012, Ellen Powell attracted national attention when she filed a gender discrimination case against the venture capital firm she worked for in Silicon Valley. Her case brought a lot of attention to the rampant misogyny and sexual harassment that women face, particularly in tech. As a result, women are now speaking out more against such discriminatory work environments. Fortunately for Lydia, her sales were only positively impacted by the parodies. She was more amused by them than offended. Stage wrote that Lydia kept a scrapbook that included clippings of anecdotes, jokes, and songs about her company. By the end of the 1870s, profits were climbing higher and higher, coming in at just under $200,000 annually, the equivalent of $4.6 million today. But the company's growth could only climb for so long. Despite the compound's success and its ability to treat so many women, the Pinkhams would soon face tragedy that not even the renowned compound could cure. Now it's time for a quick break. Have you noticed how smoothly things run here at ParCast? I have. It's because of Natalie, the new studio manager. She manages the production schedules, schedules recording sessions, does script breakdowns. She does amazing work. And do you know how they found her? They advertised on LinkedIn Jobs because they wanted to make sure the right person would see the job post. That makes sense. 70% of the workforce is already on LinkedIn and use it every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. LinkedIn Jobs matches candidates to your job based on skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. This way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Hurry to LinkedIn.com slash women and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash women to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash women. Terms and conditions apply. And here's something else we think you'll like. You sound like you have a lot of energy. I do now, but I didn't always. I started taking care of vitamins a few weeks ago. They're a monthly subscription vitamin service, and they deliver personalized vitamins and supplement packs right to your door. How did you know which vitamins to order? I took their online quiz about my diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices. A few minutes later, they recommended more vitamin B12, but they have vitamins for everything. Brain, joints, heart, immunity, even prenatal. Since I've been taking care of B12, I have more energy during the day and don't suffer an afternoon energy crash like I would when I used caffeine. 
I feel so much better. For 25% off your first month of personalized Cara vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter WOMEN. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter WOMEN for 25% off your first month of personalized Care of vitamins. Now, let's get back to the story. In 1880, tragedy struck the Pinkham family. Dan was sick with tuberculosis, and Lydia still believed wholeheartedly in her homeopathic solutions. Though she knew her vegetable compound wasn't the right thing, she instructed Dan to take another herbal supplement she put together. But it wasn't enough to save him. In October of 1880, Dan passed away. Tuberculosis was a very serious and often fatal disease in the late 1800s, and it's not likely that professional medical attention would have saved him either. In the months leading up to Dan's passing, Will had also become sick with consumption and was too sick to attend his brother's funeral. He had just recently gotten married, and his new wife panicked and moved him to California, where the weather was supposed to be better for his illness. Charles took over running the company while Will was in California, but Will faded quickly and died in Los Angeles in December of 1880. With barely enough time to bury and mourn one son, Lydia had lost another. Even though the company kept on without Dan and Will, with sales soaring upwards of $200,000 in 1881, the success of the company could not comfort Lydia. Two days before Christmas in 1882, Lydia suffered a paralytic stroke. On May 17, 1883, she passed away at age 64. She left behind a tremendous legacy, not just for her family, but for women in business who followed in her footsteps. In the years after her death, Lydia's two remaining children, Charles and Aroline Pinkham, took over the family business and incorporated the company in 1882. Through incorporation, a company becomes its own legal entity. This protects the individuals who run it from debts or legal issues that arise while they run the business. Charles handled all the business matters while his wife, Jenny Barker Pinkham, took over Lydia's role of responding to the letters that continued to pour in. Between 1883 and 1886, The business was doing so well that they purchased a bottling plant and laboratory to keep up with demands of nationwide distribution. But that successful trend was about to hit some snags. In 1906, the government called for stricter medical regulations and passed the Pure Food and Drug Act. This required patent medicine companies to list all of their ingredients. which meant disclosing just how much alcohol was really in the compound. The high alcohol content would have classified the potion as an alcoholic beverage, requiring that it be taxed at a higher rate. So the company was forced to reduce the alcohol content in their product, as well as the claims they made about what it could treat. The changes were subtle. Rather than claiming the product was a great help in pregnancy, it was now regarded as simply a good help. These subtleties were enough to appease the government, at least for a little while. But in August of 1938, the Federal Trade Commission took a closer look at the Pinkham advertisements and were not happy about what they found. 
they still had no scientific evidence to back up the claims in their ads. It's extremely important for a business to adapt to changing regulations in order to stay relevant and instill trust in clientele. During the 1930s, savvier medicinal proprietors funded research to support their medical claims as a way of keeping up with the legal and cultural shifts regarding patent medicines. But Lydia's granddaughter, Lydia Pinkham Gove, who was now helping manage the company, didn't feel it was important to fund clinical studies or lab tests. The company ignored the important business principle of continually assessing the impact of modern technologies, and this short-sightedness left the company at a disadvantage. We can look to another modern business that struggled with this principle, Kodak. The film company didn't embrace new digital imaging technology and instead chose to focus on their primary product, old-fashioned film. As digital cameras became more popular, film sales decreased, but it was too late for Kodak to catch up, causing the company's value to decrease significantly. Unable to keep up with overhead costs and compete with new products that flooded the market daily, the company was forced to sell. That same fate ultimately befell the Pinkham family. In 1968, Cooper Laboratories, a large pharmaceutical company, purchased the Lydia E. Pinkham Medical Company for over a million dollars. In 1979, Lydia's vegetable compound, now under the control of Cooper Laboratories, still brought in $700,000 annually in sales, about $2.4 million today. Today, nearly 150 years after the inception of the Lydia E. Pinkham Medical Company, their product, the vegetable compound, is still available for purchase at select drugstores and on Amazon.com. The formula has been modified to include calcium, iron, and vitamins C and E. Available in liquid and tablet form, the herbal supplement, which still bears the image of its founder, now claims to offer nutritional support to women through menstruation and menopause. Some of the ingredients in Lydia's original formula are still used in other medications today. Black cohosh is used to ease menopause symptoms, and fenugreek helps aid the production of milk in new mothers. But the effectiveness of the compound was never scientifically proven. Regardless, the continued availability is a testament to Lydia Pinkham's lasting impact as a female entrepreneur and as an advocate for women's rights and women's health issues. She helped change the face of advertising by creating a strong, referable brand that fostered an excellent relationship with its clientele. And she fostered innovation among her sons, Dan and Will, who were her greatest partners in their business endeavor. By focusing on the specific needs of consumers and their unique customer experiences, she built brand loyalty that made her company a national success. Her ads didn't just become part of the conversation on women's health, they reshaped that conversation entirely. Katrin McFay of the Museum of Healthcare called Lydia's work a subversion of patriarchal medical practices on both a concrete and symbolic level. She employed a strategic marketing strategy that used the sexist stereotypes of the late 1800s to reinforce the necessity of her product. 
She highlighted the perceived weaknesses of women and then subverted that sexism by offering a product that gave women more control over their own health. In a 2008 issue of Sociology of Health and Illness, Peter Conrad and Valerie Later consider the parallels of direct-to-consumer advertisements for Levitra, an erectile dysfunction medication, and Lydia Pinkham's compound. Both marketing campaigns suggest that consumers not bother with doctors, but self-diagnose and then seek out the available treatments. Conrad and Later wrote, Just as many of Lydia's ads broadly targeted women who wanted to feel peppier, Levitra ads targeted men who may have successful relationships, but simply want to improve their quality. The ambiguous wording allowed both companies to skirt the embarrassment customers might feel talking about their conditions. The direct-to-consumer advertisements for Levitra expanded and shaped the erectile dysfunction market, just like Lydia Pinkham expanded and shaped the women's health market. According to Conrad and Later, Direct-to-consumer advertising reverts relationships of drug companies, physicians, and consumers to a situation similar to Lydia Pinkham's day, when the drug manufacturers had a direct and independent relationship with consumers. Just like in Lydia's day, advertising can also be beneficial in raising awareness about certain health issues. It allows pharmaceutical companies to create specific markets for their products and promote them to waiting customers. Therein was the key to the lasting success of Lydia's compound. It wasn't exactly that she created a market. The issues surrounding women's health were already there. Women just needed someone like Lydia to come along with the right solution for their needs. When Lydia pinpointed this untapped market, she not only offered immediate solutions to the health problems women were facing, but she left an indelible mark on the business of women's medicine. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, and on our own website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Lisa Fry, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa? Do you want to clear up anything about secret clinical strength antiperspirant? Yes, I do. One, it's not actually a secret. You can tell people about it. Two, it's clinically strong, twice as good as regular antiperspirant. Three, strength is a cool word. Four, sweating is the worst. Four and a half, not sweating is great. So you should buy secret clinical strength antiperspirant. 
pretty litter solves the pains of having a litter box. You know how it is with typical cat litter. It's heavy, dusty, and smells. But pretty litter is 80% lighter than other cat litters. One four-pound bag lasts one cat an entire month. And pretty litter ships right to your door every month with free shipping. Go to prettylitter.com and use code WOMEN to get 20% off your first order. That's P-R-E-T-T-Y-L-I-T-T-E-R.com and enter the code WOMEN.